This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney. And this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. So let me begin by just bringing us up to date by looking at all four gospel accounts dealing with John the Baptist. I will read the text, and then we're just going to focus on a couple verses in Luke, and especially those in Matthew chapter 3. Luke, of course, begins by setting the scene, and it starts out within the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor over Judea, and on and on and on. But it ends where it says, this first opening phrase, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. We're going to spend a little time on this word of God and what this event must have been like when God spoke to John in the wilderness. And then we move on to Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist, Mark, came baptizing in the wilderness, Matthew, of Judea. Luke, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Matthew, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is the second topic we're going to be looking at today. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, Luke, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Back to Matthew. Now John himself was clothed with camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Mark. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem, Matthew, and all the regions around the Jordan went out to him, Mark, and here all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins, Matthew. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, Luke, he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Matthew, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring, therefore, bring fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Luke. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed to you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Luke, now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered Mark, 
and he preached Luke, saying to all, I indeed baptized you with water, Matthew, unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and Mark, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. Mark, I indeed baptize you with water, but Luke, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barns, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire, and with many other exhortations he preached to the people. This pretty much tells the story in Scripture by combining Matthew, Mark, and Luke and a little bit of John into a cohesive narrative and talks about John the Baptist. But before we kind of look at just a few segments here, I I want to go to the book of Luke, and I want to look a little bit at Luke, and then in Matthew chapter 3, and I want to spend our time together just asking a few questions about what we're going to read here. So let me go to Luke. And we'll pick it up in chapter 3. And we'll go ahead and and weed through the first verse, where it basically just sets the time. In the 15th year, the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, talks Herod, Tetrarch, and and Philip. And again, it, it chronologically just kind of places us where we need to be in understanding what's going on here. But I think what Luke is trying to communicate to us is this is a very dark time for Israel. It's a dark time politically because they're under the boot of Rome. They have very corrupt rulers. They, they, their, their freedoms have been taken away. It's a very dark time spiritually because they've been waiting for the Messiah to come. The last time God even spoke to them was in the book of Malachi, ending with, of course, the promise of the, the forerunner of the Messiah. 400 years have passed. Nothing is going on. And I can imagine they were depressed, they were in despair, and they had probably given up all hope that anything would change. Most likely they were morphing over to some sort of carnal or physical way to relieve them of their suffering, like rebelling against Rome or something of that nature. But the idea of God actually fulfilling his promises to them probably seemed like just a faded dream. It says, and while Annas and Caiaphas, verse 2, were high priests, again, just setting the scene here, focusing it on Rome and then kind of like a, a, a magnifying glass zeroing in on Jerusalem. It says, the word of God, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. The word of God came to John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. Now, I've shared this with you before, and I know that um, many of you have never been to Jerusalem. You've never been down by the Dead Sea, but it is virtually almost impossible to describe to you what this wilderness was like. For years, maybe even decades, when I thought of wilderness, I thought of the Appalachian, Appalachian Trail. I thought of wilderness like when we go camping, where it's, it's trees and woods and, and stuff of that nature. If you lived out west, you would probably think of redwoods and and stuff of that nature. We have a tendency of interpreting Scripture through our own frame of reference. But this wilderness is like it's like the moon, only worse. It's, it's like pumice rocks. There's no vegeta- vegetation. There's no water. There's, there's 
there's no sand. It's, it's the most uninhabitable place imaginable. And this is where Jesus went to be tempted by Satan after his baptism. But this is where John lived for decades. We, we know that Zacharias and Elizabeth were elderly when they had John, and the idea was that they probably died when he was young. He was orphaned. We don't know if he went to live with a family or if he just went out in the wilderness on his own as a as a, a young teenager and just survived by his own wits. But the reality is that this was John's home. It was desolate. As a matter of fact, there was a book written in 1985 called The Moody Atlas of Bible Lands. And let me read to you just a segment of that that describes what this wilderness around the Dead Sea was like. It says this, It is difficult to describe adequately the foreboding desolation and howling barrenness along the shores of the Dead Sea. If there could be fixed in one's mind the image of an almost painful sterility of the Sahara or of Death Valley, and then multiply that by a factor of four or more, one might come close to capturing the geographical reality to which he is exposed along the shores of the Dead Sea. And from this barren wasteland, from where nothing can grow and no life lives, from the Dead Sea, which is pretty much the septic tank of the entire world, John the Baptist emerged. I don't know what he did during that time. I'm sure he grew close to the Lord. I'm sure he didn't have many neighbors or friends. He dressed himself like Elijah did, almost in the mantle of a prophet. His diet was locust and wild honey that we'll talk about in the weeks to come. But at some point in time, when he was around 30 years of age, he received a rhema. A rhema. It said, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priest, Luke chapter 3, verse 2, the word of God, that's not logos, it is the word rhema, the personal direct communication of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, while he was in the wilderness. What was that like? I mean, was it during a time of prayer? Was was he like like walking and all of a sudden he sees this burning bush and as he comes towards the burning bush, the rhema of God comes to him and says to take off his sandals because where he's treading is on holy ground. Was it was it like Samuel when when he heard from the, the Lord? Was it was it like you and I that sometimes we get kind of an impression or, or we get kind of a feeling in our heart that may, maybe that was God, maybe that wasn't God, and I need to know for sure what was it like? Because it was such a compelling and commanding word that John left everything and began preaching about the Messiah coming, the coming Messiah and repentance in the kingdom of God that in a way that is unparalleled, it seems like, in Christian history. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. You know, we've been talking about, I guess, the entire year 
interspersed and intermingled in our messages talking about how to hear God's voice, how to be able to understand when he speaks to you, how to, how to have a rhema from him, a life-changing, life-altering, direction-setting rhema that could be the, the high point of your entire spiritual life that can turn you in a totally different direction. And that's exactly what happened to John. But, but what happened to John wasn't, wasn't just unique to him. As a matter of fact, the Bible is just, just, there's overwhelming evidence that whenever God called a prophet or whenever God called someone to, to minister him, to him in a, a certain way or whether God changed the direction of an individual and told him to do something that maybe he didn't want to do in the flesh, it appears primarily to be a rhema from God. For example, Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. It says, To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 3. The word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea. Joel, the word of the Lord came to Joel, Jonah, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, Micah, the word of the Lord came to Micah, Zephaniah, uh, the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, Haggai, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, and on and on and on. This this isolation that John had been in all of a sudden was changed when the Lord of the Lord simply reached out to him, spoke to him in a profound way, and said, I have a job for you to do. And what was that job? Verse 3, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. A baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. In our Christian church today, baptism serves as a symbol that follows salvation based on kind of a sign of what's happened in our heart, that we ask Jesus to come into our life, that we are buried and with him in death to our sins, and we're raised to a newness of life. And it's like a, a public testimony to everyone that we are now saved. I am graphically going to express by this rite of baptism what has happened to me spiritually in my heart. To the Jews, they had no baptism. It was uh, nothing in the Old Testament talked about baptism. There were ceremonial washings that took place, but there was no baptism. The only immersion, the only thing we could consider a baptism is when a Gentile, someone who was not under the covenant of God, someone that was lost and vile and wicked and with no hope, decided to embrace the covenant God of Israel, and therefore, as a proselyte or as a Gentile who wants to become a Jewish believer, he would go through the rite of baptism, which symbolically washed away his sinful nature, washed away the, the inherent evilness and despicability that came from being a Gentile. And so when John the Baptist is preaching to Jews about a baptism and a remission of sins, 
is basically telling them that they must humble themselves and consider themselves just as vile and just as wicked and just as unworthy of salvation as the people they disdain, as the Gentiles. So it was a, it was a rather bold move for John the Baptist to preach that. And unfortunately, many of the people who even went through that rite of baptism, we find out later on in the gospel accounts, were truly never saved. And then we're going to morph over to Matthew chapter 3, because this is where I want to spend a little bit of time trying to unpack some of the things that are taking place when John the Baptist all of a sudden shows up on the Judean countryside after hearing this rhema from God. Verse number one, it says, in those days, and we already know what those days were from the Luke passage, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, which raises a couple questions. Number one, of course, at hand means imminent. I mean, the kingdom of heaven is about to be manifest in front of you. The kingdom of heaven is here. But what is the kingdom of heaven? And why is that even important? And then the word repent is something Jews weren't used to hearing for the last 400 years since the last prophet spoke. But it was exactly the same message that Jesus began to preach. Right after his baptism in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, And from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent again, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven. Now, there's two things I would like to do tonight. Number one, I just want to trace. We'll just do the book of Matthew. We'll just look at a few of these, maybe, I don't know, 10 or 12, real quick, about this whole concept of the kingdom of heaven. It's something we never talk about today. It's something we never preach about. We don't even know what the kingdom of heaven is all about. But we do know that it was a central theme in everything Jesus did with his disciples. It's almost like it's something we've forgotten about, something we've rejected, something that we don't even think is important anymore. It says here, for example, in Matthew chapter 3, that John began by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the next time we see that phrase, Jesus is uttering the same words in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Chapter 4, verse 23, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. What is that? What is the gospel? Is that the gospel of salvation uh, by grace through faith alone? Is it is it asking Jesus to come into our heart? Is it the sinless atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ? What is the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people? Chapter 5, of course, Jesus begins preaching what the gospel of the kingdom is all about. He begins laying out for us in three chapters about this, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of, of heaven. Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
By the time we get to verse 19, he starts talking about the fact that whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So what does that even mean, to be less or great in the kingdom of heaven? Where is the kingdom of heaven? When do we get into the kingdom of heaven? Are we in the kingdom of heaven now? Because it appears that Jesus was talking to them about something that was imminent. Next verse. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So is the kingdom of heaven entered into by works? Well, we, we know that's not true. So what is the kingdom of heaven? And, and why is this, why is this so central to Jesus's teaching and to the gospel accounts? End of the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew chapter seven, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter, not heaven, but our eternal life, but the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my Father. Chapter 8, we've got this Roman centurion who shows this in incredible faith, and, and Jesus commends him on his faith, and he says this, verse number 11, And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. How, how, how is that happening? What what does that even mean? If if we have Old Testament patriarchs that are sitting with us in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues. Here we go again, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So does healing of diseases and healing of infirmities? Is that part of the kingdom of heaven? And what is this gospel of the kingdom of heaven? Next chapter, chapter 10. Jesus is sending out his 12. And here's the instructions he gives them. It says, do not go the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter into the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach. What do we preach? Saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, manifested by heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. In chapter 11, the very next chapter, the people are talking about John the Baptist and they're talking about who he was. And, and when he, he presents his, his servants to Jesus asking him, are you truly the Messiah as he was suffering from, I don't know, uncertainty in prison or should we wait for another? And he begins to describe John the Baptist. And here's what he says about it in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. He says, assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, among human beings, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least 
and the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Next verse. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violence take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Chapter 13, which of course is the parables, the kingdom parables, where Jesus spends an entire chapter trying to describe to his disciples and to us what this kingdom of heaven is all about. And so they come to him and they say, why do you speak to us in parables? Why don't you speak to us plainly so we can understand? And he says in verse number 11, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. And then he begins to lay out for them the the mysteries of the kingdom. The first thing he does is explains to them the meaning of the parable of the sower. Verse number 18. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the wicked one comes and snatches away that which is sown. Of course, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 24, he begins another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man sowed or took and sowed in his field. Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Verse, and then he begins to explain what those parables are about, especially about the parables of the, the, the tares. Verse 44. Now again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. Verse 45. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Verse 47. Verse 47. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea, gathering some of every kind. The idea is the fact that Jesus began preaching about this kingdom. John the Baptist began preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And one of the things we never preach about today, never, I don't even remember the last time I heard a sermon about the kingdom of heaven and what's all involved with that when God rules and reigns, not only in the hearts of people, but in society and on earth. What does it mean? What kind of change takes place? What kind of radical transformation takes place when we talk about the kingdom? There's a radical cost that comes with the kingdom. There's something that transcends how we kind of view Christianity when we enter into the kingdom. We have a tendency of of thinking that Christianity is something that we just embrace. It's something that we add to our life. It's something that, that just makes us better as we forge our way along in this world, still having our attention and our affections on the here and now. But the scripture teaches something totally different. It teaches about this radical transformation that takes place when people enter the kingdom, when we become emissaries of the king, when we exalt Christ as our Lord and Savior, then all of a sudden our affections change and our attitudes change and everything changes. And so I just want to take, I don't know, the next 10 minutes, and we'll quit after this, the next 10 minutes, and I want to just read to you some passages 
exactly what they say in Scripture that reveals to us the radical state of the kingdom. And I'm only going to look at them in two categories. And those two categories are the things that we love the most. It's the things that we worry about the most. It's the things that we spend most of our life dwelling on. And number one is our family, our wife, our children, and our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren, that we would lay our life down for our family. And number two is money and possessions, that we spend more of our time in this world trying to acquire and hold on to and increase than anything else. What does this radical transformation of the kingdom look like from the words of Jesus? Let's begin at looking at Matthew chapter 10, and we'll begin in um, verse number 34. And here's what Jesus talks about the kingdom and how we relate to it with one of the things that we hold on to the tightest, that we love the most, which is our family. And here's what he says in verse number 34 to 39. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Okay, sword, it means violence. Sword means war. For a sword means defending ourselves or attacking someone. Sword means conflict. It's the opposite of peace. So Jesus, who are we wielding our sword against? Is it Satan? Is it the evil people out there? Who is it? Verse 34 again, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come, and then he quotes a Micah passage from Micah chapter uh, 7. I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. The sword... The conflict that comes is with family. When you make a radical commitment to the kingdom, some of your greatest enemies will be members of your family. Verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The word there for love is not agape or agapeo. It is, it's a filio. Who he loves as a friend, as a buddy, as my best friend. It's not the, the all-inclusive, altruistic love we're supposed to have for God. It's the love we have for people other than our spouse and our close family. He who filios, father or mother, more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves filios, son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And you can't even love yourself that much. For he says, and he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 31, dealing with just family relationships. Then his brothers and mothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling to him. Jesus is inside some building, and he's preaching and teaching, and they come outside, knowing he's in there, maybe seeing him through the window, and they send somebody in, and they call to him, and they say, Jesus, come on, we want to talk to you for a second. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, the multitude recognized what was happening, look, 
Jesus. Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. You want to pause for a second and and go talk to them? But he answered them and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Highly offensive. It's like he was disowning them for the sake of the gospel. And he looked around the circle at those who sat about him. His mother and brothers weren't here trying to learn about the things of God, but these people were. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. That's a radical commitment to a kingdom from the words of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 9. Verse number 57. And it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to them, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man is nowhere to lay his head. If you follow me, you will give up everything. I don't even have a home. And yet I created it all. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, I will, but first, let me go bury my father. I mean, let me just take care of a family responsibility. Let the inheritance be divided so I'm able to support myself. Let me take care of my own needs, and boy, I'll I'll follow you explicitly. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you, you, go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but first... Let me go and bid farewell to those who are in my house. Let me go tell my family what's going on. Let me let me make sure they're taken care of. Let me do the responsible thing that we would all honor unless we have this radical commitment to the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, no. He says, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. There's no returning. There's no going back. None of that. Chapter 12, verse 49. I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were kindled. But what are you, what are you talking about, Lord? Well, I came to cause destruction. I came to, to, to stir things up. Verse 50, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished or complete or perfected. Do you suppose that I came to bring peace on earth, he says? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. First he said a sword, and now he clarifies what that sword meant, and it meant division. From now on, five and one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother mother against daughter and daughter against mother-in-law, against her daughter-in-law and her daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What are you talking about here? When we embrace the kingdom of God in a radical fashion, it transcends every possible relationship we could possibly have. And we have a choice, Jesus is saying, between honoring our earthly relationships that we love more than life versus honoring him, that there should be absolutely no comparison. There should be no debate, nothing at all. Verse number, chapter 18, 
Jesus has this rich young ruler coming to him. And when the rich young ruler comes to him, of course, Jesus tells him the one thing he lacks, of course, is to not place money at the center of his life, but to go ahead and and give, sell what you have and give to the poor and come uh, preach the kingdom and follow me and you will have riches untold. And when he walks away, because very sorrowful because he had great wealth, um, Jesus himself became sorrowful and he almost says to himself and others how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse number 24, it says, and when Jesus saw that after the rich young ruler left, he became very sorrowful, and he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God, exclamation point. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it were amazed, and they said, if that's true, then who can be saved? And Jesus responded in verse number 27 and said, the things that which are, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. See, we have left all, everything, and followed you. As a matter of fact, you never even see Peter's wife with him on his, on his journeys. And he said to him, assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or a wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. There's there's some sort of radical commitment to the kingdom of God that is greater than we ever hear about preached in church. And this gospel of this kingdom is what Jesus preached and John the Baptist preached and Jesus told his disciples to go out and preach that will surely thin the crowds of the church today. Shockingly so. But let's just take a a moment here and let's look at the second thing that we love almost as much as our family, which is money. It's the definition of who we are. It's the, it's the determination of whether our life has value, unfortunately, in our society today. What does our Lord have to say about the radical cost of the kingdom in relationship to our money and our possessions? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll again look at the Sermon on the Mount and see what he says beginning in verse number 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. That's the definition of a 401k. That's the definition of a savings account. It's the definition of owning possessions, of paying your house off, of of having things that belong to you. It's the ideal of a fulfilled life to owe nobody and to have everything that you need. And, And Jesus says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But, and this is a contrast, but if it's a contrast, does that not mean that his first statement is also true? But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Well, can't I do both? Well, that's what we all do. We, we do both. But obviously, the gospel of the kingdom is different because he concludes in verse 21 by saying, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So therefore, it's an either or deal, earth 
or heaven. I don't know anybody who lives this way. I certainly don't. But this is a this is Christ teaching on the radical nature of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 19. We'll begin in verse number 16. Very familiar story. Alluded to it in our Luke passage in a few minutes ago. Now behold, one came to him and said, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I might have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, do the impossible. Keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Those are the horizontal commandments. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He gave him the easy ones. He didn't give him the commandments of, You shall love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and everything that you are. And if you do that, all the other ones fall into play. Instead, I'll give you the easy ones. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, Okay, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete and whole, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, part of the kingdom of heaven, and then come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Great possessions. Let's go to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 31. It's pretty much the same account here of uh, the rich man uh, coming to Jesus, yet he adds a little bit in verse number 21. It says, and Jesus looked at him, and he wasn't mad at him for saying, I've kept these things in my youth. He loved him and said, one thing that you lacked, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come take up the cross, he adds, and follow me. Sacrifice yourself and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Luke chapter 12, we'll begin in verse number 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I have an earthly problem here. I'm getting shafted. I'm not getting my fair share. He's treating me terribly. Tell him to divide the inheritance and do the right thing. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge over you? And he said to them, Take heed, beware of covetedness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. I don't know what that means, Lord. If my life doesn't consist in the abundance of the things I possess, what does it consist of? And verse 16 says, and he spoke a parable to them. And I will, I will close with this one. And I want you to get a clear image of the radical nature of the kingdom, even when it comes to our possessions. And again, we'll talk about more of the kingdom of God next Tuesday. But just begin to let your mind expand beyond how we live and see, just see if maybe the Lord is teaching us something different. 
And again, I don't know how this plays out in real life. All I know is that constantly through the gospel, he talked about this gospel of the kingdom, and he laid out for us exactly what the kingdom is like. Matthew 13, he gives us these kingdom parables, which clearly point out a devotion to something greater than we have to him right now. Jesus and John the Baptist both began their ministry and commissioned their disciples to preach exactly the same thing. And it makes me wonder if maybe we should be doing it also once we get a handle on the cost of this kingdom. So we spoke to them a parable in Matthew chapter 12, or Luke chapter 12, verse 16. And he said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentiful. I mean, he hit the mother load. The fact of the matter is he had plenty of cash. He was making 20, 30, 40, $50,000 a month. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store up my crops? I mean, I want to keep all this stuff for me. I, I, I earned this for me. It was the result of my labor. I know what I will do. I will pull down my old barns and build greater, and there I will store up all my crops and all my goods. And then I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Relax. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, it's all about you. It's all about what you want to do. Now I can go into retirement fully funded and forget about why God created me in the first place. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will these things be which you have provided? So it is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Again, back to the, you cannot serve two masters, God and mammon. And then he begins to preach the same message in a condensed form that he did in Matthew chapter 6. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on. Life is more than food. And the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouses nor barns, and God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to a statue? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is worthless and thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you to take care of your needs, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. That's profound. Don't worry about your personal needs or be worried about them and anxious in your mind. Why? For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need them. And if our Father is loving and gracious and cares about us like he does the birds and the lilies of the field, then he will take care of us, O ye of little faith. We're here for a reason other than to accumulate possessions. Now, what do we do? Verse 31. But seek the kingdom of God 
Here it is again. How? And what's involved in that? What is the radical nature of that? Seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I, I don't. Well, what's my responsibility in that? 33. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourself money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. John the Baptist came, and he's preaching a gospel of the kingdom. And he is saying, repent, for this kingdom is at hand. Jesus, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. He sends his disciples out and says, repent, tell them to repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And it makes me wonder what we're supposed to repent of. Just our sins in general? Our sins that re- of rejecting Christ? Or maybe it's our view of his kingdom. Maybe it's our choice to live outside of his kingdom and to live in the kingdom of this world, which belongs to our enemy, and not embrace him in his fullness. I don't know. But between now and next Tuesday, when we look at these passages again, listen and read these verses and see if you can come up with some other meaning than what they clearly say. See if there's an escape clause. See if there's some deviant secondary interpretation. Otherwise, otherwise, it's going to take some serious soul searching to make sure that you and I are doing just that. As Matthew says in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And it tells us how to live in that kingdom. And if we do that, and we're not striving for ourselves, it says that in all these things shall be added unto you. Prayerfully consider that. And it has been my joy to spend this Tuesday with you. Let me pray.